And I am delighted to be reconnecting today with best-selling author Tom Clavin, with whom I've had the great pleasure of speaking on any number of occasions. We've talked in particular about several wonderful books about the Old West, including Dodge City and Tombstone, Wild Bill, and uh, we also spoke, I believe, about a, a fascinating book called Last Men Out, which was actually about the uh, the waning days and hours of America's uh, presence in, in Vietnam. And uh, this latest book is back in the Old West, and it is a real fascinating look at one of the most interesting periods in American history. It would be towards the end of what we think of as the Old West. And the book is titled The Last Outlaws, The Desperate Final Days of the Dalton Gang. And this was uh, a series of dramatic events that played out essentially against the backdrop of, of of a frontier that was rapidly becoming anything but a frontier as the West became more more heavily settled, and uh, what had been a, a, a largely empty and to some extent lawless landscape was becoming something very, very different. Uh, the Dalton gang, in a sense, was clinging to the way things had been and clinging to their role as, as outlaws, but uh, they would meet with a uh, very dramatic and bloody end uh, in the, the dramatic climax of this particular story. Uh, The book is published by St. Martin's Press, again titled The Last Outlaws, The Desperate Final Days of the Dalton Gang. And Tom Clavin, we welcome you back to the morning show. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be back. I'm so happy to have this conversation with you. Briefly, can you remind our listeners, I suspect we've talked about this before in one of our previous conversations, but what in particular has drawn you again and again back to the American Old West you know, it was almost accidental. Uh, I mean, I, as some of your listeners can relate to, I grew up at a time when Westerns were uh, not hard to find. I mean, you could turn on your television set and, and, and find Rawhide and Bonanza and the Big Valley and some of those shows. And they would still be doing uh, feature films, uh, you know, maybe not very good ones, but they'd still be doing feature films and, and showing them at the movie theaters. So I always had an interest in the American West, but I... It wasn't until I did my book, Dodge City, uh, which came out in 2017, and I really got into that story of the friendship between Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp and when they were young lawmen in Dodge City and and how their their lives intertwined. And the book came out, and I already had been embarking on a different book after that, and it really got embraced by readers. I mean, Dodge City was, was very successful, and, and people not just in the Dodge City area, but it seems all across the country were interested in and what happened in that town at that particular time. So my editor said, gee, you know, we have people asking for another story about the American West, and that led to Wild Bill Hickok. And I still had a different book I was going to be working on, and Wild Bill Hickok got embraced by readers, so I ended up doing Dodge City. And it became clear that without intending to go in this direction, though it's a direction I love doing that uh, that a, there was an audience, that there were people who were saying, okay, I enjoyed that, that book, that Wild Bill, I enjoyed Tombstone, uh, what's next? And so I found myself uh, uh, unplanned, but uh, happily uh, immersed myself in the American West, of the you know, post-Civil War American West. Mm. 
I've already mentioned the fact that this very specific sort of climactic story in your book takes place in the waning days of what we think of as the the old west of of, of America. And I want to go there in a second, but I want to ask you now about kind of the onset of that, because in some respects, uh, this 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 story spans decades, and it's important for us to understand the turbulence uh, in which uh, the the uh, Daltons grew up, and not that it fully explains why they became outlaws. But that is part of the story of who they are and why they were who they were. Well, I think turbulence is a good word. Uh, the, the the Dalton uh, children, there were 15 of them altogether, and uh, they were being born in the 1850s and 1860s, and, and I think the youngest was Emmett, who was born in 1871. And that was a period of time in, in Kansas and Missouri and, and Oklahoma that there was a lot of pre-Civil War turbulence, uh, the some people have heard the term bleeding Kansas because of all the fighting that was going on there between whether it would be a free state or a slave state. And then the Civil War itself and the aftermath of the Civil War with uh, the feelings about Reconstruction. And so for 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 young men and for, for children and for, for boys, uh, it was they were surrounded by uh, many examples of violence and, and uh, illegal behavior and uh, the guerrilla groups that operated during and after the Civil War, for example. And then you had the the example of the, the J- Frank and Jesse James and their gang, which was formed after the, in the 1860s after the Civil War. And a very uh, important connection is that the uh, another gang was called the Younger Brothers, who sometimes rode with Frank and Jesse James. And the Dalton's mother, her maiden name was Younger. She was a me- member of that family. So it's almost like the Daltons were uh, – there was no other way that they were going to become something other than outlaws. They, Not not every Dalton's son became an outlaw. I should point that out. But of the, of the six or seven brothers, four of them did. And uh, one of them actually became a U.S. deputy U.S. marshal. So I think they, the Daltons represented uh, the, 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 that last outlaw generation that, that, that was sort of emulating what had come before. Later in the book, you really kind of help us understand the way in which this whole notion of the Wild West uh, was beginning to fade. I want to just read a brief portion and then have you please expand upon it. Uh, So this is at the point when you are taking us uh, to Coffeyville, and that's in Kansas, right? And that's that's where this dramatic final event happens. occurs, and it's a fairly prosperous little community. And you write, by 1892, the Wild West, as the dime store novels kept calling it and kept inventing it, was in the past. In 1890, the year after the first Oklahoma land rush, the director of the U.S. Census Bureau had announced that the frontier was closed. And a couple paragraphs after, you say, uh, there was some relief while frontier had meant adventure and opportunity and the romance of wide open spaces, it had also contained danger and violence and premature death. I'm not sure I've ever really understood that until I read those words in your book, but you know that whole nation that whole notion of what a frontier is and the way in which the old West was a frontier, and almost by its very nature 
there was going to be a sense of both adventure and opportunity, but also the potential for lawlessness and danger and violence. I mean, all tied up together. I mean, one, in a sense, inextricably bound to the other. And of course, by this point in time, that's starting to fade. Explain that kind of fading away of the frontier and what that meant for the people who lived there. Well, there was a stronger and stronger feeling among people who had been living in the West. Uh, and of course, the, the frontier kept moving West over time. You know, the frontier could have been Kansas back in 1850, but by 1880, the frontier was Arizona and, and Utah and New Mexico. But increasingly, as the more towns were, were settled, uh, you know, people were less inclined to be um, um, enamored with, say, cowboys and, and, and outlaws. They wanted to have schools and churches and businesses and have a thriving uh, economic climate, banks. Uh, the railroads were moving people increasing frequency all over the country. And so the, 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 the interest in tolerating uh, the violence and the cowboys and the, the, the battles that would go on between sometimes cowboys and, and other cowboys and other factions uh, sheepmen against cow uh, uh, raisers, that that began to fade because people just didn't want that anymore. It was too upsetting. It was you can we couldn't bring up race families as, as, as in a healthy way in this atmosphere. So there was the actual physical uh, closing of the American of the Wild West uh, in that uh, you know like I said the, the Census Bureau director had said the frontiers closed. You know we pretty much settled everything that that was left to be settled. So there was that physical closing of the frontier, but it was the psychological closing of the frontier, too. People just did not want – I mean, they still wanted wide open spaces and, and a, a certain amount of personal freedom, but they didn't want what had come with it before, which was the lawlessness. And so they started to really support uh, police departments. Uh, you know, Previously, your law enforcement a lot of times consisted of a part-time, untrained sher- sher- deputy sheriff or deputy marshal. Who had no previous experience, or, or was, was really a shopkeeper, or was really a rancher who was part-time wearing a badge. They started to professionalize things. You had, you had entities like the Pinkerton's Detective Agency, which was you know sent after criminals to track them down. It was just there was it was no longer a haven or a a refuge anywhere for for outlaws, and so they started to either go straight, go to prison, or go to the cemetery. Hmm. We're speaking with Tom Claven author of last, The Last Outlaws, The Desperate Final Days of the Dalton Gang. One of the most interesting f- aspects of the story of the Daltons, who of course became, most of them became infamous outlaws, is the fact mm-hmm. that several of them actually were on, in a sense, the right side of the law, or at least officially so for a time. And you especially describe this in a chapter of your book called Deputy Daltons. And you say something interesting at the outset about this. Uh, when you say being a deputy marshal was far from an enviable occupation. Uh, At this point, you are talking about, uh, I think, Frank Dalton uh, and and his uh, actually rather brief career in in, in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But tell us what was so tough about somebody who would be charged with a, a position like that of deputy marshal at this time in our history. 
Yeah, there's one of the examples is, as you said, is Frank Dalton, who was one of the older of the Dalton brothers, and he became a deputy marshal in 1884, I believe. And he actually carved out a short but very respected career. He was an effective marshal. He took it seriously. And uh, unfortunately for him, in the process of trying to make an arrest, he, he was, was killed uh, by a violent death. Another one of my characters, a particularly important character in the book, is a man named Heck Thomas. And Heck was a deputy, federal deputy marshal. He was uh, supposedly the uh, uh, the model for the for the character Rooster Cogburn in True Grit. And um, he he, I explained through Heck Thomas that deputy marshals were not very well paid. Sometimes they weren't paid for months at a time because of the you know convoluted system that they had to be paid out of Washington. You're trying to track down deputy marshals in Texas and Oklahoma and, and Kansas. And uh, they were there was no training necessarily for there was no training Marshall Acad- Deputy Marshall Academy, so it was a very difficult. Uh, you, you you could be on the road for weeks at a time, so it was very difficult to have a, a solid relationship. I mean, Heck Thomas had, had one of his marriages failed because of, of being away for so much. So I think one of the things that I think my my book uh, uh, imparts or explains is that being a deputy marshal was not this you know, romantic white herb chasing down the criminals and get, always getting his man kind of job. It was a very difficult, tough job. It means even more respect for people like Heck Thomas and Bill Tillman and some of the others in the book who they followed the rule of law. The law was most important to them, and they, they underwent so, all kinds of sacrifices because they believed in what they were doing. And, uh, and did what they did in the midst of what you describe at one point, a cauldron of criminality. I mean, it is just one cannot c- cannot possibly envy somebody uh, putting their own uh, life on the line the way that that uh, that Lawman did at this at this point in time. And uh, the following chapter kind of describes how, for the, the the Daltons who were involved in in law enforcement, how things kind of gradually uh, went went wrong. Ultimately, what seems to draw uh, the, the Dalton brothers into a life of lawlessness. You know, it's, they, they had the influence of their, seeing their older brother die in a violent way. They tried being deputy marshals themselves, they were very, very young men, and they tried to be lawmen themselves. They weren't very good at it. They, again, they weren't getting paid. I mean, for Bob Dalton, that was a, the the straw that broke the camel's back. He just wasn't getting paid for the, the work that he was doing. Not that he was doing, he's a great lawman anyway. So it was really, you know, there wasn't a far big line to cross into becoming an outlaw. I mean, it just was too tempting when you had these banks that were often, you know, not protected well. Uh, it, was, it was too tempting to have these trains that were carrying payrolls uh, for, or, or large sums of money from one town to another. And again, they, they were not prof- guarded by professional security forces. So the, the, the idea was that, and, and unfortunately with a lot of criminals, they always think they're the smartest person in the room, that they're going to outsmart the law, they're going to outsmart their victims. Oftentimes it doesn't work out that way. But for a time they think, okay, we're going to stop this train in this remote place, we're going to steal the money, we're going to get away, and nobody will ever find us, we'll have lots of money to spend. Not realizing that when you start spending that money, you're easy to, to, to detect. And the other thing is, which I think is almost like poignant in a way in, in the, the Last Outlaws, is that 
it was a lot harder to get away with it in 1892 than it was in 1872, let's say. Mm. You know, it, you know, there's, there's in, in 1892, if there's a bank robbery in one town and the sheriff is 10 miles away in the next town, you don't have to get somebody on a horse, ride 10 miles to alert the sheriff. You send a telegram. You even have to point in some parts of the West where you pick up a phone and you, you call the sheriff. And so, uh, tra- you know, there were there, and there were just simply more lawmen, and, and more. There was like two or three generations of lawmen after the Civil War by the 1890s. So some of them were trained, and they were experienced, and they had imparted on on younger pe- younger deputies uh, how to how to track people. How to uh, again, you had to pick it to the detective agency. So the Dalton brothers really represented that last generation of outlaws that were that were just uh, outgunned and outmanned and outsmarted. Mm. By the way, I think we would be remiss in uh, if if we didn't mention not only that there were other men who were part of the so-called Dalton gang, but you mentioned at one point someone you describe as an unofficial member of kind of a newer iteration of, of the gang, and that was a woman by the name of Eugenia Moore, whom you call uh, a valuable ally. <laughs> Uh, to the Dalton brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Let's she just spend a, a minute or two talking character. about her. It's it's a fascinating little sidelight. It is. I mean, Bob uh, uh, Dalton, who was like the, the ladies' man of the Dalton brothers, took up with a woman named Eugenia Moore, who uh, became a sort of Mata Hari for the, for the uh, Dalton gang. Like she would, she would spy on telegraph offices and banks and and railroad lines and trying to find that information about what train was going to be carrying a large shipment of money and what bank were maybe it was a certain time of day that a bank was basically untenanted because the staff went out to lunch and you could just walk in there and take what you wanted. And uh, she was always, you know, uh, their advanced scout. Now, there's some, when I was researching the book, there are some, uh, you know, uh, writers who think Eugenia Moore did not exist. And she does sort of disappear at some point. Uh, Bob, sort of an offhand way, tells his brother Emmett, "Well, she 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 died." So it's it's a very she's a fascinating character, and I do you know admit to my readers, I think that she did exist. Her her past and her future is rather murky, but for a period of time there, she was an unofficial member of the Dalton Gang. Hmm. I appreciate the fact that as you talk about the uh, exploits of of the Dalton Gang. And uh, the way in which they uh, were able to at least uh, either elude capture or escape from from jail or whatever—I mean, perpetually frustrating uh, lawmakers—that's for sure. You actually devote uh, a, a fairly sizable portion of the book uh, to introducing us to three lawmen who play a very, very critical role uh, in this. And you've mentioned at least one of them uh, by name already. But uh, they came, became known as the Three Guardsmen. And I'm so glad that they feature as prominently in, in your book as they do. Explain what was behind your decision to throw uh, such sort of careful, thorough light on these three men and what they did. Well, I think they represent, and the three men are Heck Thomas, uh, Chris Madsen, and Bill Tillman, and who collectively eventually became known as the Three Guardsmen of Oklahoma because of how effectively they they policed uh, what was initially called Indian Territory and later became the state of Oklahoma. 
they they really represented that new generation of of lawmen who not again not necessarily trained but they became full time peace officers as opposed to part time or, or sort of ad hoc militia kind of peace officers. This was their job, you know. They were de- they were sheriffs, they were marshals, they were deputy U.S. marshals. This is what they did full time. I mean, heck, Thomas would go out for weeks at a time and come back to Fort Smith, Arkansas, where the court was judge judge uh, the hanging judge. Isaac Parker was located, and he would be riding into town with two wagonfuls of of criminals and shackles that he had arrested, spending weeks arrested. And so I wanted to show that the by showing their careers and their personalities, and they had interesting lives, and they would go on to have even interesting lives after the Daltons, after you know tracking the Daltons down and eventually having a big playing a big part in their demise. Uh, they had interesting lives after that. I mean, Bill Tillman, for example, became a Hollywood director of westerns. Uh, <laughs> he continued the. He was pretty responsible for not only telling some of the truths about the American West, but some of the legends about the American West too, because some of the, of the, of the stories were embellished. So I wanted to make sure that the reader was getting an idea that these were not just a lot anonymous, faceless lawmen. These were people who had to really make a lot of sacrifices and, and, and took their positions very seriously. So explain, in a sense, the audaciousness of this final, final uh, caper, shall we say, by the the Dalton gang. Uh, what they were seeking to do, and why, in a sense, it was a a, a doomed undertaking from the start. Well, the Daltons were, you know, by the end of the summer of 1892, they had a lot of posses after them. They, you know, Heck Thomas was closing in on them. And uh, they thought that, uh, and Bob, the so-called brains of the Dalton brothers, thought they needed one more big job, and then they could take their money and they could, you know, disappear, even even to the point of leaving the country. He talked about South America as an example. And so they decided on Coffeyville, Kansas, which is in the southeast corner of the state, not far from the Oklahoma border, where they could disappear or be more likely to disappear. And there were two banks that were right across the street from each other. So their idea was, and, and also they knew that Coffeyville, the people didn't carry guns. Even the marshal of Coffeyville did not carry a gun. Uh, you know, Coffeyville was, was a, a community that was embracing, about to embrace the 20th century. It was far removed from being a wild west town of the 1870s. So the last thing anybody would expect is that there would be this sensational bank robbery. So that was the thinking. And the Dalton brothers, there were the three Dalton brothers, Grattan, Bob, and uh, Emmett, and Dick Broadwell, and uh, I remember the fifth, the fifth guy who was the, the, with them along the way. And they went in there to rob the two banks simultaneously, and they expected to jump on their horses and ride back out. And what they hadn't counted on, and this is a very important thing to remember, nowadays, if something happens at your bank, there's the FDIC. You know, you get, there's a certain amount of government protection for your money in the bank. In those days, there was none. I mean, if your bank got robbed and that money got stolen, you lost your money. So when the word went out, you know, people started looking through the windows of the banks and they could see armed men in there. The banks are being robbed. The word went out very fast, and the individuals and the citizens of the town were not carrying guns, but their hardware stores did. So so they burst into the hardware store, started grabbing shotguns and rifles and pistols off the shelves and the walls, and and started to surround the banks. And they basically said, you know, we're not going to make sure that these guys don't get away with it. 
And when the Daltons were realized, they emerged from the banks, and suddenly there were bullets flying everywhere. They said, where did this come from? And there was this tremendous gun battle that, was, that took place in Coffinville that is, is, uh, is still remembered. And certainly in Coffinville these days, they have a reenactment of it every October because it was so dramatic. Mm. Really, really incredible. And, of course, uh, we can read about it in uh, great detail in your, in your terrific book. Explain, uh, to finish, how your book begins. The prologue is a uh, dramatic, poignant scene that takes place remarkably as late as late April 1931 when uh, a certain Dalton returns to uh, the, uh, the scene of this carnage from decades earlier. Yeah, Emmett Dalton is is uh, very, very, in some ways, the most important character of the book. He's the youngest of the Dalton, outlaw Dalton brothers. He was born in 1871. The scene that takes place that opens the book, the prologue, like you mentioned, is 1931. You're talking about a 60-year period in which he sort of bridges the you know post-Civil War Wild West, the 1870s, 1880s Wild West, the changing in the 1890s. And then the incoming new 20th century, and Emmett survived the Dalton raid on Coffeyville, but he spent a lot of years in prison, came out of prison, and then became a uh, real estate speculator and film producer in Los Angeles. <laughs> and here it's 1931. For the first time, he's returning to, to uh, Coffeyville, which was uh, like 19 years, uh, excuse me, like 29 years after the, uh, the events. 39 years, excuse me. He was only 21 at the time. And he's visiting the graves of his brothers and the other members of the of the Dalton gang. <clears throat> and he's remembering, you know, he's having flashbacks to that day in 1892 when all the guns were blazing. And there's a certain kind of, there's a sadness, of course, because of his brothers. But there's also a realization that he's kind of, kind of, kind of a celebrity in Coffinville, how strange that is. But he, he was there with, his, with a gun and the people were dying in Coffinville. And here he comes back 39 years later. And they're treating him like a celebrity. And I think that says something about how we started to romanticize the American West, some of which was worth romanticizing and some of which was is, is erroneously romanticized, including some of these desperate outlaws that, that you know caused a lot of damage. Hmm. Well, I certainly appreciate the vivid and meticulous way in which you tell this remarkable story. The book, again, is The Last Outlaws, The Desperate Final Days of the Dalton Gang, published by St. Martin's Press, the author, Tom Clavin. Tom Clavin, thank you so much for giving us yet another fantastic book, and thank you for being my morning show guest. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure.